And now it's time for Eastcast and reports from coastal stations. East at Sierra, West at Sierra, Southwest at Sierra, and North Northeast at Sierra. Wind Southwest, rain at times, good. Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss, and Swiss Roll. Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, now, now. Hello and welcome back to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB. Eastcast is a monthly delve into the arts, the culture and the community bubbling away in East London, but as always, resonating way beyond this little corner of the world. So wherever you're listening, good to have you with us. I'm Pearl Wise and I'm here with Johnny Virgo and Jesse Lawson. Good evening, one and all Eastcasters. Hello. <laughs> Later, we'll hear how an organisation linking migrant women and English-speaking women has collaborated with artists Fourthland for their new exhibition, Bear Mother House. I start another conversation by asking people shopping at Ridley Road Market about sex. And later we'll be talking to photographer Jonathan Donovan, who's been exploring many places we call home. And later, Hackney-based singer, poet, guitarist, Anthony Mensa, a.k.a. Amens, and Heidi uh, Humbles will be playing live in the studio. But first, I met Lanny Kingston, a journalist who explains why London is such a coffee mecca and delves into the history of coffee in London. And uh, it was a great story. So when you open the book, you will find uh, 28 individual features laid out on incredible places such as Monmouth and Drury, uh, Square Mile, and then, like I said, the Kew Gardens coffee research team. And uh, that's enabled me to tell the full story of London coffee, I feel, uh, but also highlight some really incredible modern players as well first book. So uh, this has been quite a long time coming. I'm very glad to work with Hoxton Mini Press. They create beautiful human-led story books uh, with beautiful, beautiful to- photography. So it's, uh, I feel like it's quite a natural progression from the first one, get- getting to tell a larger part of the story. So rather than uh, just including one particular facet of the coffee industry, I wanted to go a lot deeper than that. I wanted people who picked up the book to uh, expect what a lot of other publications have printed and to open up and see your glitzy, glammy coffee shops that line the high streets. But instead what I've tried to fill it with is the stories of the people who've made up the history and also the current face of the coffee industry. So I have uh, stories such as um, Ethiopian coffee ceremonies and uh, the families and restaurants that run those throughout London. I have the stories of uh, old school Italian roasters who've been roasting and passing their business down through their family for many generations. But then I also have the newer people to the scene as well, uh, places such as Square Mile Coffee Roasters and the contribution they've had to the more recent coffee movement. Tried to tie that all together um, using other stories like the Kew Gardens uh, Coffee Science Research Team and telling the story of how most of the world's coffee science is coming out of one place in London, uh, which is tying all of this together through with the history of coffee in London, which goes back to the 1650s, which not a lot of people know. 
perhaps one of what the Ethiopian coffee ceremonies are one of uh, the most ritualized um, types of coffee drinking in in our culture and uh, you know many others around the world. But the funny thing is, is that when I participated in the Ethiopian coffee ceremony, uh, that's what we call it here and that's how it's portrayed. But uh, the gentleman who was performing the ceremony said to us, it's not a ceremony, this is just how we drink coffee in Ethiopia. So I think uh, while it may be views, viewed as ritualized or more like a ceremony, it's, it's just consumption. And that's what I think has been so uh, popular about coffee during all of its history it's almost a casual drink uh, London has this amazing history of these raucous coffee houses in the 1650s they're essentially pubs and bars and people would go and drink coffee and talk and it it is a casual place to hang out and, and have some something good to drink and I think that's what it is now as well uh, something less formal a more casual meeting place so uh, London has an incredible history of coffee and I think what a lot of people don't know is that tea was introduced to the nation by uh, the coffee houses. So coffee was the original drink of Britain and while that may not may no longer be uh, seen as the case, it is definitely deeply ingrained in, in our history. So back in the day, uh, sailors, merchants, uh, businessmen would all meet in these coffee houses, often in the insurance districts or near the docks. Uh, a lot of London's insurance companies and financial firms got their start in these coffee houses. Uh, ballot box was introduced there, and uh, it was very much seen as a man's drink. So this, this raucous atmosphere uh, was not conducive to women joining in, uh, and they actually started a petition against coffee uh, in an, a similar way to prohibition very, very early on, uh, obviously lost, and coffee took its hold. I understand that you're currently working in New York, or have been recently. How does London's coffee scene compare to New York's? It's uh, New York's coffee scene, I'm sorry. New York is incomparable. Uh, New York has an incredible coffee scene. It's, it's very, very interesting. A lot of rich history there. But uh, not very many places can claim to have something so ingrained back to the 1650s. That's, it's, it's quite impressive and there's just so much to unearth and so much information. Uh, in terms of drinking coffee, um, New York definitely has its hot spots. But London, London has a proliferation of places. They are uh, absolutely everywhere and it's hard to get a bad coffee here i think all right so now i'm really excited to introduce jonathan donovan who set up the no place like home project hi johnny hi thanks How's for having going? me really good thank you really good um so what is the no place like home project so this is a photography and audio project that i've been working on now for about a year and a half um and it's a series of large photographic portraits of londoners in their homes um, basically whatever that might be, whether that's a, a tent or a boat um, or a shed that they've made themselves all the way up to sort of large mansions and historic houses and, um, you know, a little slice of everything in between. So I've tried to um, look at what's the way that people are living in London and photograph that. And I've also recorded little interviews with people. So they tell very short, concise stories about their emotional connections to their homes. And so the project looks really at that and about how... Londoners feel about their homes, which is a real aperture into what's going on in London at the moment. So that's that's what I've that's what I've been up to. Cool. Um, why did you start doing it? What was the motivation behind it? Well, I initially wanted to uh, a project, um, and uh, this is my first solo project. So I was looking for something that would um, 
get me uh, access to interesting people and I could make f- interesting photographs. And I, so I started out trying to make a coffee table book about the kind of quirky ways that people were living in London and then quickly um, sort of took stock of what was going on because it, it just didn't seem right to me to just do interesting ways that people were living when you had the, the sort of the story of the housing crisis going on and I got sort of drawn more and more into that. And what I wanted to do was to present the different people in London and the different ways that they're living in a non-judgmental way and to present people's stories, let them tell their own stories and then let the viewers and the listeners make up their minds about how they felt about that because hopefully a lot of the project, a lot of the work within the project um, sort of confounds your expectations. So you might go up to a picture thinking you're going to hear someone tell you a particular story only to be uh, challenged, to have that stereotype or prejudice that you might have inside you challenged and that's really what I want to do. Um, and hopefully that's sort of succeeded. Um, what's been the most surprising like, person you've met or story you've heard in this process? Um, that's a very good question. I think, uh, well, one of them is 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 uh, a story we're going to hear a little bit more about in a second, but it's a, a couple who are on a, a boat and um, and they are technically homeless and they don't have anywhere to live and they were very adamant that they were not going to be labelled as homeless. They didn't feel that they were homeless. They felt that they were very much rooted in their seasonal way of living and moving around and that their lifestyle choice, if that's the right term for it, um, could not be called homeless because they were at one with their place in the world. And that really surprised me because it's it's, uh, not something that you expect to hear from somebody who's... um, so vulnerable or you know and who lives in a way that we all hope that we never end up living in so that that really surprised me and um that's not what i expected them to say has this has meeting so many people and hearing so many different definitions of what home is has it changed what you how you define home the word home it's i mean i don't know if i went into it with a definition i don't think i'd thought that hard about it when i started this project and since meeting you know i mean i've i've spoken to hundreds of people and i've now got 50 portraits and the project's going to carry on expanding and hopefully go national as well but um the i just felt like when you get in the room with someone and you ask them about home you really have to listen because everyone will just tell you something different and i each house that i went into which home that i went into i tried to sort of have an angle about how I was going to tell the story and more often than not I'd walk away with a completely different story or in the edit another story which I missed at the beginning would come out and I think that that's um yeah I think it's very it's everybody I spoke to defines home differently some people are saying that it's where you're you feel loved some people are saying it's where it's where you own the, the land or the house and some people say it's where you are safe you know, um, so everybody has a completely different experience of home to, based on their opinions. And some people like a noisy house and some people just want a silent, very tidy house. So, you know, it, it tells you a lot about the people, you know, depending on how they define that, that, that you know, concept of home. Hmm. OK, so we're going to... So, yeah, as you said, it's like... It's a series of photographs with audio. And you've brought along three different photographs... I have. ..from East London... Um, so we're going to play some of them. So the first one is from a photo called I Just Want a Room Somewhere. Do you want to just give us a little introduction about that? Yeah, so this was a, um, a, um, a home that I went into last year and it was a, uh, a British lady um, who suffers from dementia and has, um, you know, begun... The dementia has taken hold, so she's begun to lose quite a lot of her, her, her immediate and her long-term memory. 
and she is being cared for by a family of um, Syrian refugees who escaped the war um, really when it began to get um, utterly catastrophic in Syria and they are an absolutely astonishing family unit together when I was I was gobsmacked when I was in there because there is they are just like grandma and grandchildren and you know they there's so much love in that family and if you hear the full audio you know I think we just kind of a little clip now we hear the full audio you'll hear that love and I you know a lot of people um just you know well up when they hear it because this they just they they are family and it's just such a wonderful thing to witness right let's let's have a listen she remembers songs a lot from her past and when she hears really catchy sounds or catchy music and rhythm she starts tapping with her feet and with her hands and she gets really happy she likes my fair lady and frank sinatra uh, especially new york and fly me to the moon yeah fly me to the moon and what's the one i don't know what's the name of my fair lady song uh there there's i've could have danced all night and the other one is uh mm-hmm. lovely i'm from syria so when my family came they loved pat and pat loved them and and we couldn't think of moving and leaving pat alone because she gave us love and we needed that and we started this family relationship with pat it's not about caring it's a family life pat and i dance almost every night if my mom is busy i help pat to bed but before we have to sing somewhere over the rainbow pat say bismillah bismillah every day every day bismillah Instead of counting the steps, she says, Bismillah. 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 (laughs) And she knows what this means. Like Habibi, the word Habibi, you know, it's my love, right? Habibi. Yeah, you see? (laughs) Most of the times I do my patterns at night because my... Oh, sorry. Sorry, that was the first one. Um, It's amazing that he, he, it was almost, he didn't, he wasn't going to stay with his family and then he was like, I just had to stay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the the thing that, that that happens just after that is that they all start singing. Um, Wouldn't it be lovely together? And um, and um, you you can see when they're with each other because um, perhaps dementia means that she can only um, you, she's trying to say stuff. And, you know, sometimes you can understand it. And sometimes you can't. And the majority of stuff that Pat was saying, I couldn't understand it. But they understood everything she was trying to say. Like, they were totally in tune with her and in tune with her body language. And they had a way of communicating with her that I just didn't have. And I just thought that was that was just a beautiful sort yeah, of amazing. thing to watch. Yeah. And, you know, this, was, this story was captured at the time when the refugee crisis was, you know, getting all this negative press. And it was just, I just felt like, you know, people need to see things like this. How long have they been living there? Um, well, the, the family came first, and then Nizar, the father, came afterwards, came later. But they, um, the girls are now at school and, you know, now leaving school, and they've come here and learned English, and now they've got, going to university, and, you know, they're really going places, those kids, you know, which is extraordinary, really, considering where they've come from. Um, so the next one we're going to listen to is called Creative Space. Who's that? So this is uh, a woman called Isatu, who has a fashion label called Azalea, 
Um, and she's originally from Sierra Leone, and her fashion label is really blowing up now. And she was in Paris uh, Fashion Week, and you know she's designing dresses that are popping up in various uh, you know newspaper stories with celebrities wearing them. So um, it's a real success story. But it all started in her home. And she changed her job. She had a sort of, you know, a city job, which I think she found unfulfilling. And then she decided to do what she always wanted to do. And her mum made um, sort of African batiks and stuff. And she had grown up around that and she wanted to make clothes. But she started in her living room, cutting and sewing and, you know. So it's the story of where you start, a small business person starting and how that goes. So Cool. Most of the times I do my patterns at night because my daughter will be asleep and I don't have much going on. I don't expect phone calls. You know, it's quieter and I can just get on with the pattern. So my dining table became my cutting table, my pattern table, my sewing table. So I just created a space that I love, that I enjoy spending time in. I like it to be quiet. I like it to be peaceful. I can think, I can do all the creative things. It's almost like when you're doing yoga or meditation. I went to a boarding school. I did my studies when everyone was asleep. I tend to go to bed early and then I wake up maybe about two, three o'clock in the morning. I tend to think well and taking a lot at that time of morning. I think that's the other thing with, you know, working from home or being self-employed. You, you sometimes struggle to sort of draw the line as to where you stop. I sit down with my daughter, I have a chat with her, especially when I was doing the first collection for London Fashion Week. It was a lot of time and the only way I could have done it was for me to sit her down. She was very young, she was about four and a half, five. I sat her down and I said, look, this is what mommy needs to do. This has been mommy's dream. Mommy wanted to do something like this on this kind of platform. And you would have days where you don't see mommy or you'll have days where You've seen mommy very little and there are times when if this, you know, picks up, I would not be home. I would travel a lot. And I think it's important for her to know that it's hard work. I put a lot of time and if there's anyone who understands how stressful, how difficult it is and how much time I put into this, it would be my daughter. Because, you know, she sees me at my worst days. She sees me at days when... Things have worked and how happy I am, you know, going through different emotions. And there are times when she, you know, she would just come and tap my back and be, Mommy, be okay. There are days I come back home after exhibitions, you know, I'll call her. I'm on my way home. It's been a long day and it's been so tough. And I got home, opened the door and she was like, Mommy, I ran you a bath because I know you've been stressed. Uh, so just to let you know, um, uh, we've been tweeting photographs of um, this, the, the photographs that go with this audio um, as it's been playing. So if you want to see Johnny's photos, you can go into our Twitter at Eastcast Show. Uh, we're going to go straight on to the next one that you were talking about, Johnny, the one about two people who are living on a boat. So we can hear that. Mother Earth is my home. So I can never be homeless. What they call homeless, because... No matter where I travel on earth, no matter what kind of postcode they've got, I'm already at home. I'm a walking home. So therefore, for me to buy a mortgage, no. No. If you say to buy a land, that's different. Because a land, then you can build what you want on it. I'm not secure at all on this boat, but I'm secure at all in myself. Is anybody secure in London? Is anybody secure in their buildings? If they miss their payment, do they keep their house? 
or they'd have to phone up the bank and say, excuse me, I do apologise, I will put interest. To get secure, you've got to be secure within oneself. Feel good about yourself. But because of repairs and stuff on the boat, I could be moving any time. It could be tonight, it could be tomorrow night, it could be weekend. But the moving doesn't bother me. Because ants move every day. Birds move every day. So it doesn't faze me because I'm already at home. So I've got no toilets, I've got no water running in there, but there's nothing that is bad about living on the boat. Tesco's like to lock their bins, but there's some generous, bless their souls in Tesco that will put food aside in baskets and try and make it look decent, but hide it for the homelessness, what they call homelessness. The ones that live on the streets and have no square box windows or you know, something covering them. Even some single baby mothers will go to the same places that we will pick up the food just to get some milk to find and, and, and feed their children. Milk, food, food should really be nothing. Um, so thanks so much for coming on, Jenny. Where can people find your photos? What are you doing next? So the project continues. We exhibited on the cut, thanks to the Young Greek Theatre, on, uh, in September, and we're now looking early next year to exhibit again in central London at King's Cross. But all the details, when that's firmed up, will be on the website, uh, which is, I think is on your, your website, jonathandunn.co.uk. And uh, so, yeah, keep in touch with that, and you'll find out where it's going to be next. Well, have you got social media as well? Yes, I am learning social media, as you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that will be there. Great. Thanks so much. And it's so wonderful that um, people welcomed you into their homes as well, because that's not always easy, just getting past that front door. So, yeah, that's, it's a really wonderful project. Um, so to continue with the home theme, um, I met Theodore Cadbury from the organisation Xenia, and Fourthland artists uh, Eva Knutsdotter and Louisa Schuck as they were preparing for a new collaborative exhibition at the Space Gallery called Bear Mother House. I don't know if you remember me. I'm Theo and I founded Xenia in early 2016. We've been running workshops that bring together migrant women learning English with English-speaking women monthly and now weekly. Xenia is a Greek word that means hospitality and love between hosts and guests. So when we named Xenia, we felt it was quite important to make it not an English word so that it was just as understandable or not understandable to English-speaking women as non-English-speaking women. It also sounds very feminine and I think very strong. My name is Eva. I work as part of Fortlam. I'm an artist and... Together with Louise Ushuk, we have a socially engaged art practice that works in many different social contexts with quite multicultural groups of people. I'm Louise Ushuk. 
I think what was amazing for us about discovering Xenia is we wanted to do a project for a really long time that worked with ideas of migration and also worked with ideas of householding and how the home or that experience of home is something that actually transcends ideas of nationhood and borders. When we discovered Xenia and found that the whole idea was creating this friendship circle and a place where English was shared, not as a kind of definitive mode of communication, but as something which would help many women to express themselves and something of the feminine, we thought it was a perfect group to work with because a lot of the core parts of Xenia were the core parts of Forfland as a practice. And for the workshops that we run, coming together is sort of in its essence, both within and outside of the work that we've been doing with Forthland. So we come together as a group of women from recent arrivals and people who've been here for many, many years to come together and create a community of women in our local area and and establish new ways of imagining what our local area can be together by sharing and learning from each other. For some women, the fact that it's women only means they're able to come every week and they're able to bring their children, which is quite unusual. But also the way in which women are able to share within the workshops, I think is really special. A lot of the participants have fed back that they wouldn't feel comfortable sharing the things that they share if if there were men present. You know, women have said, I say the sorts of things in Xenia that I would normally only say to my sister. You know, that's a really common feeling and it does feel very familial. And that's partly the kind of circle that we create where everyone's voice is really valued. But I do feel that the fact that it's women only is key for that. One of the big reasons why Xenia was established was to make the most of what British women want to do to show solidarity with migrants and refugees who are getting a really hard time at the moment, but really don't have any understanding of those people's lives, really don't have any way of connecting with their neighbour. They might live in a really multicultural area. We do in London live in a multicultural city, but very few people actually engage with people from different backgrounds to them. So... For the English-speaking participants, taking part in Xenia is a way of really establishing real connections with women from completely different worlds to them. And I think for a lot of the English-speaking women who take part, they kind of think they know what they're getting themselves in for and they go in thinking, I'm going to help a woman to practice her English. And they don't know how much they don't know. And equally, a lot of the migrant women we work with, a lot of women feeling much more welcomed in London as a result of what we're doing and they have started to challenge their own assumptions about maybe Britain can be a welcoming home for me. So I guess initially it was about going to Xenia and listening and being really part of what was going on. From the very beginning the hierarchy was the circle. The mode of communication was women to women and that was immediately embedded in the structure. And then it immediately felt right as a place of actually listening all together. And that was very special because, again, that is very unusual. So the first, I think, four weeks was just all about just going and just being part of 
the session. And then through that, there was a decision to create this fictitious character, which was called Bear Mother House. Bear Mother House initially appeared in the Xenia sessions through a letter that was written to Xenia. And the letter always began with, Dear Xenia, I don't know if you remember me, but we need your help. letter there was a, a bundle and inside there was a series of different objects that the women were asked to unravel and described completely in their own words with their own origins and everything what what they found and I think in terms of thinking about thresholds and separateness and togetherness between groups of people, whether that's a migrant or a resident. What, what is very embedded in our practice is this idea that you're never just a visitor to someone else's place or story. In that visitation, they also become a visitor of your story. And if you can meet at that basis, you're already within another territory of, of communication. You initiate something through the separateness where there's a space of uncertainty but that space of uncertainty like the bundle that mystery is what can actually create this potential exchange and throughout this project there's a lot of thought about that idea of welcoming thresholds doorway fragments of something that might be a house but that house is not something that is a structure or a home it's something that is really an experience of a potential. And what's been really wonderful when we've brought in certain materials, so sometimes we worked with clay and burnt bones and ground pots and the women kind of ground them all together in order to make these new forms. The women who have more recently come to these lands know exactly what's going on. They have all of the skills in their hands to teach absolutely everybody else and the material itself is totally deleted, all hierarchy of who's the maker, who's the artist, who's the storyteller, who's the newcomer. And that happens over and over again because the actual material itself is so known by others' hands and we've kind of forgotten it. So within the sessions, something of everybody's differences of cultures and educations and places and whatever they we'd all carried with us created this idea of an archetypal woman and we were really surprised that she just was birthed almost between us all as women and there was overlaps and deep resonances with absolutely everyone in the circle about who this woman was and that was amazing because it actually went past all of these other assumptions that anyone might have had and something of that archetypal woman is, is actually present in the exhibition Another house, and that is also something for members of the public to connect with, of course, because this archetypal woman exists as these bits of fragments. The sort of resonance of her is basically the exhibition. That she would take to the market. For us, we've mainly thought about this display of the stories as a way for the women that we're working with to be a kind of valued part of local storytelling and I hope that that's then able to have a knock-on effect of 
other migrant women seeing themselves reflected in stories being shown locally. We're hoping that the installation of Bear Mother House in its sort of ephemeral and physical nature can invite all of these experiences into how it's felt into, how it's walked upon, how it's sort of thought upon as people are within the installation. There will also be a sound piece, which is a mixture of their voices, our voices, other sounds, which will act like the sort of narrative, but quite in an abstract way, to allow these influxes of of experiences to come through. I mean, I guess we're quite intrigued about what will happen because I imagine there'll be people arriving with all kinds of expectations about all manner of things. I mean, the project is uh, titled Bear Mother House and we titled it that because we felt that those three words had an inner resonance, each of them, either together or separately, that actually went beyond the literal meaning of any of them. We hope that there is something of, of a feeling of that that will be present in the gallery. People aren't going to encounter any bears, houses or mothers in any literal form. But that's always a challenge. And when her head was tired, she gathered butter. The butter wrapped in a fig leaf, she placed it as a crown on her head. Bear Mother House is currently at the Space Gallery on Mare Street until the 6th of January and Forceland will be organising some workshops and talks around the exhibition so do look out for those uh, via Forthland. Uh, .co.uk and if you're interested in joining Xenia um, they meet on Saturday mornings uh, at Hackney Library and you can get more details via xenia.org.uk that's Xenia with an X so X-E-N-I-A dot org dot UK You're listening to Eastcast on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB all our stories, past and present, can be found on eastcastshow.com. And if you never want to miss a show again, just search Eastcast Show London on iTunes or your favourite podcast provider and you'll get the show straight to your feed. And then you can leave us a review. Uh, so now it's time for the fourth episode of my Starting Conversations mini-series. This month I walked down Ridley Road Market asking people how they define sex. And then I went home and chatted to my lovely flatmate Ailey about how sometimes other people's ideas of sex can impact negatively on her. Uh, obviously, people are going to talk about sex in this, so if that's not your thing, maybe switch off for the next ten minutes. Well, sex is something that you have to do when you are in love with someone, and to show your love, I think you have to express by doing that. Uh, two people <laughs> enjoy <laughs> <laughs> um, and can I ask you what your sexuality is? <laughs> Don't think I can carry on, sorry. I'm too embarrassed, I can't even speak now. My voice is quick. Sorry, my darling. No, that's okay. I can't even go there Love to love you, baby. Something that's agreeable between a man and a woman physical and emotional like uh, moments people share together it's a physical activity 
and that involves a level of intimacy. Human relations to create a human being. You know, to be honest, I used to have all, always orgasms when I have sex. But at the moment, frankly speaking, I have a trouble because if I have a sex, I cannot have the, I cannot have the orgasm because I suffer from the cancer, prostate cancer, and now I am on antibiotics. But when I take these antibiotics, I cannot have the orgasms. I didn't have orgasms. And the doctor, I've told them, so the doctor advised me to, that he can uh, prescribe via- Viagra. But at the moment, I don't know uh, what to do. Because if I get a Viagra, after I think I can be dependent on Viagra, and I don't know how does it work. So at the moment, I'm not very happy because I, can't, I cannot use the sex like I used to do. What is my sexuality? Uh-huh. Straight? Do you orgasm every time you have sex? Oh, of course. Okay, and does your partner orgasm every time you have sex? I don't have a partner. You don't have a partner? No. Do the people that you have sex with? They say they do. (laughs) And how do you know? Loud noises. Do you orgasm every time you have sex? Um, not every time. No, definitely not. If they ask, then I'll say, like, I won't, but I, like, won't really say it otherwise. Why not? I don't know. I don't know, I suppose sometimes you don't want to be, like, too needy in a way. It's so weird. Do you orgasm from, like, penetrative sex or from clitoral stimulation? Yeah. (laughs) Clitoral stimulation. Yeah, more than penetration. Yeah, 100%. Basically, if I'm on top, I'll come. And then, but otherwise, not really. Um, and how often do you orgasm when you have sex? Well, I'd say every time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, does your partner orgasm every time? Um, I'd say 99% of the time, because she lets me know when I screw up. <laughs> <laughs> I, yes, I, I think the sex is supposed to be between two different gender. Bisexual. Do you orgasm more with women or men? Women more. Yeah. <laughs> and why do you think that is? I just think we know what we want, and it's. I feel like it's more with the men. It's just like they are just need to come, and then it's finished, you know. And maybe I'm not finished, like after that, you know. I turned out straight in life, that's it. Other people turned out different ways. I've got many good friends in homosexuals, be they female or male relationships, and it doesn't make them any different to me. It was... Like, 2010, it was a different time. And I slept with my first girlfriend and I told my friends the next morning um, and they didn't really say much. 
And then the following day, they came to me and they said that they'd done some Googling and actually, in fact, what I had done was not sex. And that was the end of it. And why... Why did they say that? Because they were like, well, we Googled how do lesbians have sex. <laughs> um, and we found out what you do. And it turns out that that's... We, we just think that you should know that... Oh, really sorry, this is really awkward, but what you've done isn't actually sex. It's just, it's just not sex. Um, and so that was uh, a bit infuriating and a bit difficult. The context of this was we were at church, so they, their minds were blown that they actually had been having premarital, premarital sex because the things that I was saying were sex. Um, they, they felt like that was a kind of loophole, you know? I'm Ailey, I'm 24, and I'm your flatmate here in beautiful East London. <laughs> I first learned about um, straight sex when I asked my mum what sex is and then she was like, oh, uh, it's a special cuddle um, that Jesus made or something. Uh, <laughs> and then a few days later she brought me this book which was for like three-year-old children, I think. And she read it out to me, even though I was like eight or something. She read it out to me and we were in a tiny caravan on a caravan holiday and my sister, who's five years older than me, just retreated to her bunk with her hands over her ears. She put a curtain round herself. She's going la 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 because this caravan is literally. I mean, it was the. I mean, she wasn't far away from us at all. She's like a meter away from us, going la la la. And my mum read this book, and it didn't tell me any more than just that it's a special cuddle, really, that God created. And then I don't know how I worked out what lesbian sex is. I actually don't know. I think I just probably started having a wank, and then was like oh, I could do this with someone else. And then we, we just went from there. I probably did some Googling. There was the internet, obviously. I probably went on Tumblr or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so people quite often are like, oh, the thing that you think that you're doing that is sex is not... So that's actually foreplay? Just to let you know, that's actually foreplay. Um, and so I kind of never really use the word, I feel like it's what straight people say. Do you have penetrative sex? Uh, yes. But it's not really the be-all and end-all of the sex act, and if I don't have penetrative sex, I don't I don't think that it's a wasted exercise. I would say it's nice to have penetration sometimes, but not all the time. Sometimes I think of it like an after-eight. You don't always want an after-eight. Sometimes it can be a good addition to a meal, but you wouldn't say you haven't had a meal if you didn't eat an after eight. Although that's making it sound like I do the penetration last, which isn't what I do. I like to use penetration as foreplay. <laughs> but then that's just me. <laughs> I mean, I have had a few conversations with men where they're like, oh my God, like, my friend went down on his girlfriend for 20 minutes. Oh my God, like... I would never do that. I've got better things to do. Like, uh, so yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that. That's just that's just a fact. But I don't know. Maybe porn. Like, porn's probably a, a, a problem. Why? Well, all the 
foreplay uh, is very quick and is used as kind of like a means a means to a penetrative end. And yeah, it just like creates um, a false image. Because sometimes it can take a long time, like sometimes it takes you ages to come and I think if men knew that and, and that was... I mean, I'm not saying there should be really, really long porn. Or maybe there should, I don't know, feature porn. <laughs> um, but maybe if that was shown more and that was talked about more, then men wouldn't feel like it should be happening. I can't think of the word. Cohen. Simo. Huh? Simultaneously. Well, yeah. I don't know. Because I don't... At this point, I realise I don't know that much about men and male anatomy, but I feel like it takes them, like, not very many minutes to come, usually. And women take a bit longer. But it doesn't look that way in porn. I just think sex is great. Everyone should be having way more sex. Everyone should be talking way more about sex. I think sex should be treated in the same way as we treat just any kind of personal growth. You should be trying to get better at communicating about sex and having sex. And it's really important. People think it's not important. It's so important. It's not like a fun little recreational thing if you have time. It's important. It keeps your, your mind healthy. So I think. It's, my, it's another of my hot takes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jesse. Um, it's really funny because we were talking earlier and you said that of all the conversations that you've been having with people, people were really shy about talking about sex and that really surprised me. I know it's tricky to kind of talk to people in the street about that kind of thing. You're yeah, yeah. obviously just walking up to strangers. But, yeah, I was kind of surprised at, about that. I thought people would be quite open about it these days yeah i know it's yeah so i've done so it's four so i did one where i talked to people about periods one about the menopause one about wanking and now about sex and all the other three were totally fine and maybe there was one person in the street who said they didn't want to talk to me and this one about half the people that i approached said no i think there's just something about sex that feels i don't know maybe more personal i don't like i really don't know why why it is yeah funny so what's (laughs) next do you know uh, no, actually, oh, maybe polyamory, maybe, but I'm not sure. <laughs> if Let's anyone see, has watch this space. You yeah, can tweet or tweet in. us, tweet <laughs> us, give um, Jessie some ideas of uh, what, what she can talk to people along the streets of uh, Hackney or East London. Yeah. And if you see her, please do talk to her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. She I'm is really lovely. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> okay, guys, so. You know it's a good show when we get to end with music. And Anthony Amens Mensa is an East London-based solo artist expressing himself through the combined mediums of rhythm guitar, soul food... Soul, soul food? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Soul-filled, bluesy vocals and socially, emotionally conscious rap lyrics. Channeling multisyllabic flows to create a raging torrent against the systemic inequalities of our world. That's an intro on a half. <laughs> Anthony has been on the show before to talk about his day job as Hackney Pirates and the great work they do. And we saw he had a guitar on his back, so we decided to kidnap him and get him back in the studio again. So, hi, Anthony Amens. How are you doing? I'm good, I'm good. Thanks for coming doing? again. Thanks, um, for, thanks for inviting me. Oh, no problem. We had to. Um, <laughs> we had to. We knew it was, it was. we had to do it. So, first, I want to know from you, why the name Amens? Uh, it's it's like just my name. It's Anthony A. Mensa Mens. It's like so. Okay. Really not creative. At so all. so no, it is creative. I tell, you, I tell you what, I, I came up with the name because it was when I was working in Sainsbury's. 
when I was like 16, it was like my username on the till. Okay. And I was like, ah. <laughs> amen. That rolls off the tongue. When you, when you said it just now, it sounded like you were saying amen. That's what I thought. I thought amen had something to do with, I thought we were going to have a 10 minute conversation about how he's like Chance the Rapper, he's bringing, you know, religion back into mainstream hip hop. But that's <laughs> one's maybe, off the maybe list. Maybe philosophy back into mainstream hip hop. Philosophy. Yeah, maybe, well, yeah. where do you draw your influences from? Then, what influences you to write? Uh, I mean, Lauren Hill is okay. like, you know, the goddess. Um, Bob Marley and I mean James Brown, Jimi Hendrix flavors. But to be honest, Lauren Hill. I don't even want to say anything other than Lauren Hill. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that kind of soulful hip hop with conscious intelligence would that be if i had to pigeonhole I mean, it wow yeah yeah that's that's what i love it's not necessarily what i do but like in terms of what got me into music i tell you like, actually michael jackson when i was a kid when i was like an actual kid and just free and sometimes i can be free now <laughs> but um when i was a real like child in myself michael jackson sung to me but um in my older years lauren hill okay and what have you been working on in terms of recorded projects uh, so, I mean, I started off just rapping, um, not just rapping, I started off rapping, emceeing yeah. to UK hip hop, then a bit of grime, a bit of garage. Um, and then I, I started a band because I was writing lots of melodies. Yeah. So I got, got around some singers and started a band, got a rock guitarist who was amazing, virtuoso, and we like we built a band and we were in a band for about six years. Yeah. Um, and through that, I started to get musical. I started to understand a bit of music and then picked up a guitar, mm-hmm. started to do my own thing. And when that band kind of faded out, then I started developing my own kind of vibe. Okay. And who would you say is somebody you'd aspire to be apart from Lauren Hill? If you could collaborate with anybody, who would that be your dream collaboration? I've taken her right off the table. Now, uh, right now, it might be Gary Clark Jr. Um who's like an American like rock blues player and he's just like some of his stuff is is incredible yeah okay so I understand that you work in education as well in your day job do you mm. bring your music into that in any way luckily yeah I, I get to now <laughs> do you know what I did it when I started and it was always like a hope but um, we've done some recent music projects we've done a project where the kids were writing songs about or song lyrics about the environment and how to protect it and looking after looking after animals. Uh, I'm smiling because Jesse was obviously there. Um, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did a, um, a cultural exploration project where they were writing lyrics about youth culture, playground culture, uh, but uh, foods and the foods and different cultures you'll find in the area, uh, fashion, dance, art from different cultures. And um, we we are working in partnership with this uh, music technology company in the area, mm. and they they gave us. Um, these cool pads that light up when you tap them they're like synth pads yeah and it made the music just really accessible you can hold it down move it around and it creates a beat for you mm-hmm. uh, so they were learning bits of production and then to round it off we did like a performance at the end of the week for their parents and family what does collaboration i mean with young people or even with you know old jaded musicians <laughs> what does collaboration bring to you life Right. Otherwise, it's, you're in solitude, isn't it? Like, collab- I just I collaborate in loads of things. I, I run events where I live. I live in Hackney Wick. Mm-hmm. And sorry, what kind of events? We should maybe be talking about that. Uh, I mean, we'll invite you all. Like, we do like kind of cross art events. Like, um, we do a thing called Spice Box where we try to mix arts and culture. So we cook loads of different food, different cuisines in the house. Um, and then we have different art mediums. So we've had poets, then a music, then a um, magician. 
then a comedian, um, and then some live music, and it's like a mix of people. Um, and then other people in other units run events, like there's an event called Red Gates Theatre, where they invited loads of um, actors to come down and do monologues, and there's there's like, I mean, there are art galleries, art galleries around, but when you yeah. go into everyone's house, everyone's house is an art gallery. It's like, it's amazing, yeah, so... I just oh. love that. I love that mixing and collaborating. No, well, thanks very much for sharing that because I think we should definitely be talking about that on Eastcast. But um, <laughs> now, would it be possible for you to play something for us? I mean, definitely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. Um, so I'm going to play a tune called uh, Symptoms of the System. Uh, my friends keep calling it Hustled. Um Yeah, see, like you say, I work with kids. And this is a song kind of about what it was like for me growing up. And how I can't really pretend to be perfect to the kids I work with. So I hustled in my youth. But I wasn't trying to be no Batman Tell you the truth I ain't claiming To be nobody's victim But these sicknesses we're afflicted with Are just symptoms of a system Yeah Looking back on my reflections eyes I reflect on why My reflex was to reject advice I had to re-step, check, revise Re-step my stride Stop skidding, correct the slide You ever wrecked a ride On a reckless ride I hope the damage was easily rectified At high speed, some fine In a second live And just be taken and you get No second try This movie's one take Show with no rehearsal Starring good girls Gone bad, role reversal It's drama on the states Use rolling circles And Carmen's replayed Like an old commercial Yeah, so commercial Don't advertise to glamorise the road is hurtful. I'm sorry if the camera lies. I still analyze the scene where the van arrives. I'm caught with my plan supplies. Ah, oh, stand aside. And so I hustled in my youth. But I wasn't trying to be no bad man. No, I was just confused. Tell you the truth. I ain't claiming, no, I ain't claiming to be nobody's victim. Nobody's victim, no, no. But these sicknesses we're afflicted with are just symptoms of the system, yeah. like trying to be this thing a role model but I mean we're all just human in it definitely not perfect and bare times I feel like a hypocrite when I talk to the kids um, telling them like don't play fight because uh, I was blatantly doing that <laughs> when I was their age and when they get a little older and they start start seeing things 
And maybe they should have. See where I grew up. The ethnic minorities were in the majority. Most made a living modestly while living in poverty. Hardly no one owned their property. It's council authority. More concerned about controversy than working on policy. Now this only bothers me because I see it obviously. Would it be this way? Not possibly if not for this monarchy. Who set about the robbery of my country's sovereignty just to build up their economy but leave no commonwealth in the colony. So Mumsy emigrated because what she envisioned is a life far greater than us living in villages. But the truth's the opposite to opportunistic images. She only got jobs for snobs, mopping up spillages. Watch the rich getting richer. Holidays with a villain. Her poor staying chink for down by where the river is. My daddy never stuck around, he just didn't give a spit. She's forced to raise those kids on the privilege. And so I hustled. In, In my youth. But yeah. I wasn't trying to be no bad man. No, I was just confused. Tell you the truth. Uh-huh. Now I ain't claiming. No, I ain't claiming to be nobody's victim. Sicknesses were afflicted with are just symptoms of the system. And yes, big love to my to my sister, the um, the the mystical unicorn, highly <laughs> humble, uh, who came along to to help like give that some more flavours. Like you can probably hear, there's a cold in my in my uh, in my throat somewhere. Um, but um, hopefully Heidi's like buttery buttery vocals dressed over that. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, dude. They certainly did. Thank you so much for coming and um, playing on the show. We'll have time for a tiny bit of music at the end, but it is time to say goodbye. Um, Eastcast will be back soon on Resonance 104.4 FM with more sounds and stories from East London and beyond. Do you want to just kind of strum us out with a song? Um, In the meantime, you can find everything on Eastcast Show. So to play us out is a little bit of Amens and Heidi Humbles With. What are you going to play us? I'm not really sure. Okay, (laughs) we'll just go with it. So thanks for listening and join us again next month on East Coast. Somebody tell me there's more to life than money, power and the borderlines. Can we erase all these drawn divides? But the horizon is broad and wide So many fought for the cause and died Paid the highest price so you could afford your rights I won't conform, I won't fall in line Cause what I got in mind is so broad and wide You were born to die But ideology is immortalised It's conflict when thoughts collide Civil wars ignite, civilians forced aside Powers in short supply Corporations drain the nation's resources dry yeah. Only question is, will the poor survive When the ice caps melt and the waters rise Somebody tell me there's more than life The money piled out of borderlines Can we erase all these strong divides For the horizon is broad and wide So many fall for the cause and die Pay the highest price so you could afford your rights I won't conform, I won't fall in line Cause what I got in mind Is so broad